Well, today we're going to start a new series called One Thing. One Thing. Uh, last month, we, were, uh, we spent our time studying in some of the New Testament uh, letters written by the Apostle Paul to churches across ancient Rome. Um, most, of the New Testament, most of the New Testament actually was written by this guy named Paul. He was a church planter and a pastor. He walked all over, traveled all over the ancient Roman world, planted a ton of churches, and then he would write letters back to these churches after he had traveled on to give them instructions, some guidance, sometimes some correction. And today in this series, especially at least today, we're going to look in the letter of Ephesians. Uh, this is a church that was in Ephesus. Uh, again, that's a real place. There's real ruins of this. So when you read these Bible names of these places you don't know, it's not Neverland, Wonderland, Candyland. It's, these are actual real places that existed, cities where people lived their lives every day. And so the Apostle Paul visited this church in Ephesus. He spent some time there. He built deep relationships. And then uh, a year or so or a few years after he left there, he writes back this letter to give them some guidance and some correction. And one thing about Paul that he has this really interesting thing of doing is he has this way of taking these really complex ideas and boiling them down to these nice little memorable statements that are so easy to understand, and because they're so memorable, they're easy to take with us. Now, the older you get, the more you realize how helpful it is that something is memorable, right? If it's complex and convoluted, it's like, yeah, sounds great. It's, out, it's in one ear and out the other. Um, and we know uh, the power uh, when you take memorable wording with a truth that is powerful and you put those together. Because then you have this truth that's really wow that you can take with you. And some of the biggest moments in our history have been tied uh, to our hearts and to our minds with memorable wording. Um, for instance, I am guessing that most of you can say with me Neil Armstrong's first words on the moon. One small step for man. One yeah, some of you know that, right? Hopefully most of you know that. Um, here's another statement from President John F. Kennedy. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Right, exactly. Uh, it's better with the accent. Um, but, so we understand the power when something's not just you know, smart and a statement that's powerful, that's true, but when you can make it memorable, it's really, really helpful. Um, probably, unfortunately, the way that we interact with this mostly, this, the power of something that's memorable in our day is with ads, okay? This is why all I have to do is go, ba-da-da-da-da, I'm loving it. Yeah, see, you knew that. Right? You just feels, feels right in, right? Um, you know that Skittles enable you to taste the rainbow, all right? Red Bull gives you wings, okay? And America runs on Duncan. That one's a little quieter because we don't live in the, in the New England area, but up there, uh, they turn on their faucets and Dunkin' coffee runs out. So um, it's, but, but, but that's what the, these memorable statements, it enables these things to stick in our brains. And if it works for dumb stuff like an ad, I mean, taste the rainbow, how helpful is that ever going to be to you except like on the rare trivia night maybe that you go to, uh, if, if, if that, right? So if it works for these things that don't really have any importance, how much better is it when you package it with the powerful, transforming Word of God? And Paul had a way to do that, where he could boil these things down to the one thing that you need to know, that you need to remember, and, and, and carry with you. 
And those one things, they might not contain everything you need to know, but they get the best essence of what you need to know. And so we're going to be looking, um, at least today and next week, at the, uh, the letter of Ephesians, like I talked about. We're going to start in chapter 2 today, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And like I said, Paul had spent some time there. Um, and in this letter, one thing he's going to do is he's going to address a problem that had popped up. And it's not a new problem. It's a, it, it wasn't new then, and it's something that still exists now. What you had was the, the church in Ephesus had become to be this mix of people, different groups of people. Um, you had um, the two main groups were Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians, Roman Christians. Uh, and, and the Jewish people didn't, at this point in time in history, have a real great relationship with pretty much anyone. Uh, At times, the Jewish people had kind of started to think that they were better than everybody else because they were kind of God's chosen people, that God had kind of chosen to speak primarily through their people. Uh, The prophets were all Jewish. Jesus was Jewish, right? And so they kind of had started to think like, we're just the right people and you're all the wrong people. We're the good guys, you're the bad guys. And so consequently, at certain times in history, um, that nation didn't really treat anybody else really kindly and that didn't help their reputation very much. And so the Jewish people, the Jewish Christians, and these other non-Jewish Christians, the New Testament often calls them Gentile Christians or Gentiles, they just didn't get along. They had a hard time being put in this one church and living nicely, playing nice with one another. And I mean, that's kind of, I mean, like I said, that's not new, right? And it's not um, something that went away, that only existed in the ancient world. You take any two groups of people who have kind of a bad history, and you try to put them together into one organization, one entity, one family, and there tends to be some problems and some hostility. Um, I saw a statistic the other day that said as of 2019, so just two years ago, only, uh, or less than, excuse me, less than a quarter of evangelical churches in our country had any real measurable level of racial diversity. And the, the level of threshold that you had to pass to be considered a racially diverse church was 20% of the people in your church weren't white. That's still not crazy diverse, right? But, but so even in the modern church, we tend to like, whatever groups we're in, in our culture, we tend to stay in those groups when we go to church. And because, again, we mix together, oh, that's problems, we just stay apart. And so this isn't a new problem, this is something that has long been an issue. And so the common thing that happens, and what happened here in Ephesus, was when you get these two groups together and you try to get them to play nice, they suddenly start to see each other as the enemy. And they start fighting with one another and trying to decide who's better and who's right. And, and so you'll notice that Paul is talking to these two groups here. Because in these first couple verses, notice how he flips back and forth between saying you and we. You and we. When he says you, he's talking to the Roman Christians, the Gentiles. When he says we, he's talking to the Jewish Christians because Paul was Jewish. So, two groups of people. Let's go ahead and start. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked before they became Christians. Following the course of this world. Before you were a Christian, you followed the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul says, you Gentile Christians, you guys used to be dead 
spiritually dead because of your sins. You were cut off from God because of the way that you once used to live your life. You chose to walk a road of life that led away from God, not to him. And because of that, you were cut off. And that's true of every single human being who has ever lived. We've all made the wrong choices. We've all done and said things we shouldn't do. We've done and said things that, quite frankly, were wrong or evil. I've said this many times, but if you could take your worst, most regrettable moment and right now put it up on the screen to play out like a movie, you would be so embarrassed you would run out of here and never come back and try to be, probably move, right? When you, you want to, wouldn't want to be within like a hundred mile radius of anybody that had just seen who you truly were at your worst. Like we are all have ch- made the wrong choices. We've lied, we've cheated, we've stolen, we've hurt people. We love through addiction, selfishness, anger, greed, pride, abuse, whatever it might be. We have all walked the road that led away from God. Every single person in this room and in this world have been presented with moments where we had the chance to do the right thing and the wrong thing, and we chose the wrong thing. And we're all guilty, every single one of us. And because we walk these paths, Paul says we were dead in our sins, left dead in our sins. But one thing that's really interesting is he presents these Three forces that were tempting us or influencing us to make the wrong choices. Now, that doesn't take the responsibility off of us. Our choices are our own. But there are these pressuring forces, he says, that are guiding us to make the wrong choices in life. And so, he starts by saying that first, um, we followed, he says, they followed the course of the world. He says, you sinned following the course of the world. That's just the normal cultural influence that nudges us in the wrong direction. We talked about this in the entire last series, about how every show we watch, every song we listen to is somehow kind of forming us to believe and look at the world a certain way. Secondly, he says, they followed the prince of the power of the air or the spirit that is at work in the men or sons of disobedience. That's a complicated way for him to say the devil And then he also says that before Jesus, before we met Jesus, we lived in the passions of our flesh. That we lived in the passions of our flesh. That every human being has these natural desires to do the wrong thing. That the human heart isn't always right. You don't always want the right things. You don't always want to uh, fall in love with the right things. The, The things that you think are a really good idea and that you spend time planning thinking this is a great idea might not be that smart at all. We all have these, you know, these desires that are in us that aren't exactly great. And so Paul wants to kind of open the eyes of these two groups of bickering people and say, hey, there are enemies at work in your life, but it's not each other. There are, there are forces that are trying to hurt you and destroy your faith, but it's not your fellow Christians. It's not your brothers and sisters. And so he says the real enemies of the world the real, or sorry, the real enemies of our faith are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, there's a really good book that just came out by a guy named John Mark Comer. It's called Live No Lies. I just bought it, just kind of skimmed through it a little bit. I'm really excited to read it. But he kind of spends this entire book trying to help us see that they, we do have these real enemies to our faith, that these are historical things that Christians have always realized. We have these forces pressuring us to do the wrong stuff, And we need to be aware of it so that we can fight against these enemies of our faith and live in the right ways. And so he kind of, in his book, lines out how these three enemies work together. Um, First, he starts with, the devil feeds us deceptions. 
The devil feeds us things in our ears that are not true. Um, the, in the Gospel of John, Jesus talks to some Jewish men and women who are kind of struggling to accept what he's teaching them about salvation and life and hope. And so in John eight forty two, Jesus says to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I am not I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now this is a really offensive thing to say to these people who think I'm God's chosen person. We're God's chosen people. And he's like, you're not God's children. You're children of the devil. Like, that's a weird thing to say to people who are, like, thinking they're, like, the shining example of virtue. And he says, he, Satan, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Some translations say that when he lies, he speaks his native language that it's just as natural for him as anything. And so he says very clearly that Satan is a liar, and his number one tool to deceive us and lead us astray is lying. And he whispers these false statements in our ears that play on our insecurities, our fears, our pride. Um, and, And you can really start to explore this in a lot of ways and start to realize it. And because when things are going normal in life, and we don't really always understand that we have just swallowed some of these lies like whole. We don't understand it. We don't see it. Um, but when there's some, usually moments of conflict or these feelings arise inside of you that if you're honest, you know they're not great. Okay, let's say, for instance, someone you really like and care about had something go really well in their life. They got a big promotion. They got a big raise. They had some sort of windfall pop into their life. And, and what you should do is be happy for them. Someone you care about got ahead. But instead, you start to feel feelings of jealousy. When you start to dig around and why you're feeling jealous, it's probably because you've believed some lie that says um, because they won, because they got ahead, and you didn't, that means they're better than you. Because something good happened to them but not to you, you're worth less than they are. There's something wrong with you. And you start to think, well, yeah, I, there's, I deserve to get ahead. I want, I want that. How dare that? Why, why did they get it? They're not better than me. And you start thinking of all the things you know about them that are flawed, and you start to root against them, and you start to feel cynical towards them and, and angry towards them. But really, does, does them having a blessing show up in their life affect your value as a human being at all? No, that's just a lie that we believe. And we wouldn't even realize that we believed it unless we dig down through our behavior and start to understand that. There are tons of these kinds of beliefs that we have believed that Satan has whispered in our ears. And here's the thing that's about the lies of Satan, is very rarely are they crazy, obvious lies. No, you know how any good lie works. The best lies are a little bit of truth, a little bit of lie. Just enough, or maybe mostly truth, and just a little bit of lie that makes it feel true. I think that's how Satan works on so many of us. And so instead of being happy, we, we, for the people that we love, because we believe lies deep internally, we've internalized them into our character, into who we are, we start to resent the people that we really should be celebrating. And then, so the devil is the first of our enemies, the lies of the devil. The second thing, he says, then we move on to our flesh, the unhealthy desires of the flesh. Um, A guy named Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest friends, he wrote a letter to Jewish Christians, and he says this, 
He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You know, we have this really common, nice-sounding belief in our culture. Again, it's a lie, but it's follow your heart. Your heart will always steer you in the right direction. That is so wrong. I cannot believe that we have, as a culture, just accepted that that is true. I mean, if you have children, you, you can stand and watch. That's a really bad decision you're about to make, buddy. You want everything, and you don't need most of those things. If you've ever had a friend that kept going back to a very destructive, corrosive, poisonous relationship, our culture says every time they get back together with that person, you're supposed to go, oh, good, I'm so happy. What a cute couple, right? But in your soul, you're like, that is so wrong. It's going to hurt you. It's going to blow up. I'm going to have to be there with the Kleenexes telling you it's all okay. Everything's fine. I'm going to have to be your friend coming over, you know, patting you on the back and cleaning up the mess that this whole thing is going to make because you wanted something that was bad for you. This isn't, I mean, the idea that we follow our heart and it's always going to lead to this wonderful, beautiful future, it's just not true at all. It's nonsense. And so he says here, our hearts, we got to be careful. The desires of our flesh are not always good for us. In fact, Many times they will wage war on our souls, that our bodies and our minds, we have cravings that if we satisfy them all, will lead to destruction, chaos, and pain, not flourishing like we've been told and led to believe. And so what happens is the lies of Satan play off of our broken desires, our unfounded, disordered desires of our hearts and mind. And so Satan looks at our desires for pleasure, success, praise, control, riches, importance, and he takes advantage of those by selling lies to us that will lead us to want to give in to those desires that, again, don't always lead us to the best place. And the final enemy is the influence of the world. Uh, John, another one of Jesus' closest friends, he wrote a letter. He wrote three letters, actually, in our New Testament. But he says this about the world to Christians. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Any Christian, that should scare. Because I love plenty about this world. I love Netflix, I love Disney+, Plus. I like money, I like fancy cars, I like big nice meals, I like having my belly always full to the point, like anytime Abby and I are like, let's watch what we eat, immediately like I'm starving, like I'm not starving, I just want to eat what I want to eat all the time, right? I love the way of this world, I just do, and chances are you do too, I mean we live for comfort, our whole society is comfort. You've been in a drive through line for more than five minutes? How dare they? You deserve your food when you want it. Like, that's just how this world works. That's how we think it should be for us. And so, he, but man, that scares me that if you love the world and the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in you. He goes on to say, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of the Father, the will of God, excuse me, abides forever. Now, we talked about this last week in the last whole month about, again, we're, the whole, everything in culture is kind of forcing you to think the way our world thinks, to, to have a, a 
belief system of what's right and wrong and what's wise and foolish that lines up with kind of the majority of the culture at any given moment. Whoever's got, who's ever in charge of the posts you read, the articles you read, the websites you visit, who is ever in charge of the news organizations that you like, all of that stuff is going to be bent through the lens of what they think is right and what they think is wrong. And when we take it in and we just let ourselves be shaped by it, that's very, very dangerous. And so the devil whispers lies to us that take advantage of our broken desires. And when we start to try to satisfy those broken desires, we look around in a world that just applauds that. Okay, yeah, those, sure, do that. You do you. Follow your heart. You chase your dreams, buddy. You go after it. And so these three things work together to lead us far and away from the road that God wants us to be on. And so Paul, in Ephesians 2, where we started this whole journey this morning, he wants us to be aware of the fact that, yeah, we do have enemies in our lives. There are enemies, but they are not the people sitting in the pew next to us or the pew over from us, or the pew in front of us, or the pew behind us. We do have enemies of our faith, people that are trying to mess things up for us, but it is not our spiritual brothers and sisters. But really, we're fighting this spiritual battle for our souls. And in those first three verses verses of Ephesians, Paul kind of points out that we've already lost that we've already given in to all three of those enemies. We've already let them just kind of whoop up on us, and we followed the way they wanted us to go. We've done the wrong things, and we've, done the wrong, we've followed the wrong path of life, and because of that, we're dead. Uh, that's a scary word, dead. We're dead in our sins. We've set ourselves up to be children of wrath, is what he says, meaning we deserve punishment. We deserve anger from God because we've come into his world, and we've brought hatred and anger and evil, and we've hurt people that he loves. And because of that wrong choices, we deserve wrath and anger, which sounds pretty bleak. But don't worry, that's only the first three verses. Verse four on really starts to turn the story around a little bit. Because not only do we have enemies in our faith, we also have a hero. Let's go to verse four, Ephesians chapter two, verse four. Oh yeah, Uh, that was all things I just said that I did not put on the screen. There we go. Anyway, Ephesians chapter two, verse four. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Rich in mercy. That means like so rich, your, your, your pockets are overflowing. Like you just, there's not a purse big enough to put all your money. Like there's not a bank that can hold all of your, your gold. Like think Scrooge McDuck's money bin. Like if you've ever seen DuckTales, okay? Like God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, with which, the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. You see, one of the lies the devil will feed you is that you're a bad person. You've done bad things. Your history, whatever it is, the people you've hurt, that has disqualified you from the love of God. No, that is not the case. Even at the darkest moment, even at that dark moment that you wouldn't want put up on the screen, God still had overwhelming love and mercy towards you in that moment. He wasn't going, oh, I'm going to get them. He was thinking, oh, man, they got deceived. Those enemies got him. Another one of my kids. I hate it when one of my kids gets led astray down a bad path. It's just like any parent who watches their kids grow up and get, start hanging out with a bad group of friends, and the friends influence them to take the wrong path. It's heartbreaking just as much more so than it is angering at their behavior. And so God still loves us even at our moments, of uh, our worst moments. And it says, in those worst moments, because of his great love, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, he's saying, yeah, you all made your bad choices. You're all responsible for your your bad choices. It's not the enemy's fault. You were deceived, sure. They worked against you, sure. And there's plenty in Scripture that talks about those enemies will be dealt with. But our choices are our own. But what about salvation? This says that salvation isn't something we do. It's not something we achieve. It's not something we're good enough to earn because we were such good students. We're such good Sunday school attendants, note takers, Bible bowl winners, whatever, whatever measure we like to you know, use to rate our spirituality, Bible knowledge, whatever. Um, he says, no, that's not, that's not what saves you. We were saved by grace alone, by God himself. He is the one who saved us. That we were utterly stuck, utterly stuck in our mess. And when we couldn't climb out, he came down to rescue us. He came down to save us. We were stuck until his grace led him to help us out of our mess. And then Paul takes, again, this amazing message of salvation, and he boils it down into this nice little statement that's only a few words. It's very easily memorable. It's something you could stick in your brain with only a little bit of work this week. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, at least the first part of it, could be something that you have memorized. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace, meaning that you didn't do it. This is something that is so different in our world. And, and we've heard, the, so many people have heard a version of the message of Jesus that we don't even notice it anymore. But Christianity is so opposite of every other belief system in the world. Even secular belief systems that really don't lead to anywhere. Even in our very post-modern, post-Christian, atheistic society, there's still like a, a rule code that you and I are supposed to try to keep. Every other system of belief in the world, every other philosophical moral teaching says that whatever goal or afterlife you're supposed to go after, it's your job to get there. There's going to be some list of good deeds you have to accomplish. There's going to be some set of laws you have to keep, some sort of spiritual-sounding hoops that you've got to jump through that, that'll lead you to heaven, nirvana, uh, a better afterlife if you get reincarnated, whatever it is, it's up to you to do that. And Christianity comes along and says the exact opposite. It says there's nothing you can do. The only way to salvation is because God wants to save you. That Jesus' salvation comes by grace and grace alone. When instead of us trying to climb some ladder to heaven, Jesus came down on a rescue mission. It's a free gift from a generous and loving God who saw you in a mess and loved you too much to leave you there. It's not, there's, not a, there's nothing you do to accept it. There's nothing you do to, to earn it, to, to make yourself worthy of heaven. There, there, shouldn't be, there should never be a human being that struts into heaven like, about time, about time you got me here, God. I, boy, I worked hard for this. No, man, we all limp into heaven going, boy, I can't believe I made it this far. There's no, there's no strutting through life as, as Christians. We are all saved by grace through faith. Faith being when we put the trust for our eternity into Jesus' work on the cross, where Jesus gets all of our focus. We give him all of our loyalty, all of our allegiance. We, we get rid of all of those lies that Satan has told us for all the things that you need, 
All those things that are going to make you satisfied, that are going to make your soul feel okay, that are going to make you feel like you, your, your life is good and you're valuable. All those things that Satan tells us to chase, we put all those away and we say, no, everything I need is found in Jesus. He is the focus. He is the center of everything that I pursue. So for, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. Whoops, I got it, doubled it there. So that no one may boast. It is the gift of God, not the results of anything you've done, so that no one can boast. Because Paul knows that even after we become Christians, we still keep hearing them lies of Satan. We still have some of those bad desires lingering in our souls, and we still have a world pressing on us, trying to lead us the wrong direction. And so, in every one of us, we have this pride that makes us want to feel important, to feel like we're enough, to feel like we're valuable compared to the rest of humanity. Uh, you know, I, I remember so many times in my life where the things that were difficult, it wasn't necessarily what was happening to me, mean friends at school or a failure at, at a job or, or anything like that. It was because all of those things made me feel less because I was, I was putting my hope into, well, if I can be funny enough for all my friends to like me, then that means I matter. If no one's making fun of me, then that means I'm good. I'm a, I'm a valuable human being, and people want to spend time with me. Oh, no. no. No girl wanted to go with me to that dance in high school. Oh, I might as well just curl up on the floor and listen to sad country songs over and over and over again. Anybody else? Was that just me? Anybody else do that? have that little self-loathing routine when they were... An overly dramatic junior high or high school student, whatever. Um, but, but what we see here is that, yes, at times we're still going to fall for those lies. We're still going to fall for those deceitful things. And so Paul says that those, those ways that we want to feel important about ourselves, that will creep into the church. And over time, as the Holy Spirit transforms us and makes you more like Jesus, and you start to be more generous and more kind, and you serve here, and you serve there, and you're doing more things, the pride can well up in you, and you can look at other people who aren't as far along in the journey and be like, those people, I'm so much better than them. What's wrong with them? If only they could be as awesome as me. And you wouldn't say that out loud. If you say that out loud, your pride's gone way farther than most normal people. Like, like, go see a psychiatrist levels, probably, right? Like, but, 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 so we kind of keep that, that, that inner monologue to ourself, but that's kind of how we start to feel. Those people, those people. We look at people outside the church, those people, they don't even deserve to be in here. He knows that's true, but he says, but the fact that we're here, the fact that we're saved, the fact that we're received into the kingdom of God, it wasn't anything we earned anyway. It was a gift, a free gift of grace so that no one can boast and so what Paul is doing is he's taking these, this church in Ephesus that has two groups of people who both think they're better than the other, who neither one likes the other group, who want to point fingers at each other and say, you're my enemy, you're my enemy. He's like, let's just uh, take a step back. Nobody's better than anybody. You're all dead without Jesus. You're all hopeless without him. You're all evil in your own right. And God, by his grace, not our value, lifted us up out of our mess, and he puts us on a path to heaven, and he starts cleaning us up as we go. So any, any effort that we put in, any transformation of our life, can, we can take no credit for it. It's entirely done by the work of Jesus. And, I mean, I've, I've tried to think of a good 
you know, way to explain this. Like, how can, is there a good coattails metaphor? Like, for, for a Christian who brags about being better than other people, it literally doesn't make sense. It just doesn't. Uh, it, there's not, I mean, there's so, maybe the only thing I could think of was there's so many celebrities today who aren't famous because they're good. They're famous because they were friends with somebody who was good. You know, it's like, what do you do? You don't do anything. You just like snuck in the background of somebody else's reality show and then got your own spinoff and you've never done anything. Like, it, you know, I think of like some actors' kids get in big movies. It's like, they, you didn't do it. You just, your daddy earned the, earned the Oscar and they thought hopefully that traveled in their genes and maybe they could, like, there's no right for us as Christians to brag about anything that we've attained or achieved. It's entirely the work of Jesus. And so, if we let the lies of Satan play on our prideful desires of the flesh, um, we're going to have fights. We're going to have disputes within here. Whatever way we want to draw the dividing line between us and them, that's going to be just a way that we can fight. But in the church, we're all on the same level. And so what Paul wants these people to realize is, yeah, we have enemies, but they are not our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are fighting the same spiritual battle. And instead of fighting each other, our goal should be to humbly remember that we all blew it. And Jesus saved us by his grace. So rather than feeling like we belong here more than other people, we simply are grateful that God let us in the doors to begin with. That I should get up here every Sunday with, with gratitude that, man, I can't, I mean, I don't deserve to be a preacher. I know what I've done. I know what I've said. I don't deserve to be up here. I mean, I spent, like, luckily Jesus saved me in high school. And so I had, like, I kind of got in the gates a little bit early. Um, but, like, I look at, like, the things that came out of my mouth, the ways I intentionally tried to just hurt people. Because my, my defense mechanism in high school was, if I can hurt you, you can't hurt me. If I can make fun of you, you can't make fun of me. If I can hurt you harder, you can't, you know, I wasn't like, I don't have the muscles to beat anybody up, but I could, I could, you know, come up with something insulting to say. And it's like, after spending years just intentionally trying to hurt people, here I am every week, I get to speak life. Like, that doesn't even make sense. It's a gift of grace. And so we learn over time, if we keep in mind that by grace we have been saved through faith, nothing else, if we can keep that at the heart of what we believe, remember that one thing, then we're going to realize we can't fight with one another. We don't need to, under, to, to look at each other like our enemies. We're all on the same team, and that we do have actually enemies that we can fight together. And we can together, we can fight the devil's lies by pursuing the truth of Scripture. We can, desire, we can fight the desires of our flesh by praying for the Holy Spirit's transforming strength. And we can fight to influence, uh, fight the influence of the world by spending less time letting the world into our eyes and ears and spend more time together as a church family serving Jesus and his cause. So that one thing that Paul wants us to remember, it's a huge thing. It might be just a few short words, but that is the essence of what we believe as Christians and it should be the driving motivation of our humility and our desire to be a church of peaceful people who spend our time not fighting with each other, but fighting together on this road of faith that we're all walking together. And so, by grace, we have been saved through faith. And that fact should keep us humble, it should keep us grateful, and it should help us maintain the ability to love our sisters and brothers in Christ and face our real enemies of faith together. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this amazing teaching of Paul, the way he boils this down to the one thing, by grace we have been saved through faith. And even that is not a work of our own, but it is a gift from you so that we have no room to brag, no room to boast. For whatever reason, that desire to feel superior is so 
sneaky and insidious, and it can come into our lives even when we feel like we're humble, even when we're trying to keep you at the forefront. Satan is so tricky and our hearts are so deceptive that it's, it's just so easy to believe the lies. And I just pray that you would help us to have our hearts and minds opened to the fact that we do have enemies of our faith, but they aren't each other, and that we can keep our eyes on the truth of Scripture, the truth of salvation, the hope of the gospel in Jesus, that we are saved by grace through faith, and it is not of our doing, but it's your doing, so that we can look up to you every day when we wake up and say, thank you, God, for another day of life. Thank you for another day of hope and another day of a chance to be shaped away from who I, my desires in my heart want me to be and to be shaped in the image of Jesus so that I can be a person of deep love and deep grace. But it's a, it's a choice we have to make every day to be aware of the enemies that are out there and the enemies of our faith and to try to identify the lies of Satan and to ignore them, to make the choice not to believe them. And also not believe the hype that our hearts will always lead us to the right place. So Father, I pray that this group of people that we, that we walk this road of faith with, this church family, I pray that we can be um, kind of the, the guiding standard, that we can come back week after week and, and just remind each other of our humble beginnings, that we were all a mess, and by your grace you've saved us. And we can remind each other how grateful we need to be each and every day of of our lives, not just on Sunday mornings. So thank you, Father, for this amazing one thing that Paul put together in such an amazing and memorable way. I pray that you would burn that into our brains and into our hearts so that every day we wake up and are humble and grateful for what you've done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.